sing together the hymn 107. Alas, and did my Saviour bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. Here we're led to the cross, we're led to the very centre of what we believe in the great work of Christ when he died for us and gave his life as a ransom for our sin. Let's sing it with joy and with worship in our hearts.
Let's read the Word of God together. We find it in Psalm 47. Now clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great King over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises unto our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. Let's bow together in prayer. <coughs> We're led to the greatness of God, the exaltation of God here. We're seeing him as the king who is over all the earth. And despite what is happening in the nations of the world, God is still on the throne and his will shall be done on the earth. Heavenly Father, we still our hearts in the presence of God today and we come to the throne of grace. We come to the house of worship. We come to seek thee now through the Lord Jesus Christ and upon the merit of his blood. We seek thy presence from the beginning of this service. We pray that Christ will be in the center of this gathering where two or three are met together in his name. We know that he's promised to be in the midst of that people. And here we are today, many gathered here who know the Lord, who love the Lord, who have been to Jesus for the cleansing power and are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And it is our desire more than anything that the presence of God will fill this church building and that your presence will be known, your voice will be heard, that this meeting will be memorable. We'll look back upon it as a time when God met with us, that God spoke to us. Lord, what a vain thing it is to, to come to the house of God at any time and just leave the same way. These are times of worship times when we ought to be taken up with the Lord whom we profess to love. And we know that the first and the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and our strength. We pray that we will love the Lord even right now in this service. May our hearts be drawn out after him. We have been led to the cross work of Christ and the opening hymn, and how we bless thee for a Savior who bled and died, who came into this world to be the sacrifice for sin. We rejoice afresh that this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And Lord, we praise thee for the victory of Calvary. We thank you that that victory was won on our behalf. We rejoice today that because of the cross we have forgiveness of sins, because of the pouring forth of the blood of the Savior in that once and for all sacrifice, 
This day we have peace with, the God, with God. We are reconciled to him. There was a time when we were at enmity with God. We were not only strangers, but indeed enemies. But through the blood of the cross, we've been reconciled. You've taken away the barriers. You've taken away that wall of partition. You've broken it down. And Lord, we have access now to our God. We who are nothing, nobody, mere worms in thy sight, when we think of the greatness of our Creator, and yet you've given to us this immeasurable privilege of fellowship with God. May we never take it for granted. May we enjoy our Sabbath days. May your presence be so real to us as we meet here. And we pray that you'll bless this people. You know every individual that's sitting in this church building today. And you know those that are listening in on the internet. Jesus knows all about us. He's acquainted with our ways. There's not a pang that rends the heart, but the man of sorrows had a part. And Lord, you know the trials and the burdens that each one faces today. But we come to a God who has said to cast our burden upon him and he will sustain us. May grace be given to do just that. May burdens be lifted today. May hearts be blessed. May God speak to us. And Lord, we remember those connected to the church family who are sick and laid aside. We pray for them today that the healing touch of the Master's hand will be upon their bodies. These things we ask in and through Christ, our Redeemer, who died for us. Amen. Let's further worship the Lord as we sing 494. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Rise to sing.
Good to see you today as you come to God's house to worship the Lord. We bid you welcome. And if you're tuning in on the internet, welcome also in the Savior's name. A few announcements to make tonight is our gospel service at 7. We come to pray for those that are able to get out half an hour earlier at 6.30 to seek the Lord and just very simply commit our way unto him for the preaching of the word. Uh, my mind and heart this week has been drawn to the Psalm 23 and particularly the valley of the shadow of death. And that will be the subject tonight as we think of the fourth verse, particularly of Psalm 23. In the morning, the Hebron Tots will meet at 10. In the evening time, as we've been announcing this past number of weeks, it's the election of elders here. Eight o'clock is the time. And those that are members of the church, remember that, please. This is getting very near. And I know that you've been in prayer. You've been considering these matters. May the Lord direct our way. Tuesday morning is the Senior Fellowship at 11. Tuesday evening is the Youth Challenge at 7. And I would just ask for prayer. Tuesday night and Wednesday night, I'll be speaking at Dremore's Bible Conference. They're having a week of meetings. And we've been asked to speak on the subject of evangelism and how uh, people can relate to others and speak to others and seek to win others to Christ. So pray for us, please. Schools ministry, also Wednesday morning in the will of God, this Ligon Primary School, Friday in Kararea Primary School. Thursday night is the midweek at 8 o'clock. And then please uh, remember also on Friday, there is the open day for our Christian school. That's from 3 o'clock through to 7 o'clock, and you'll be made most welcome. Uh, you might have an interest because you would like to send your child here, but you might have an interest just to come and support the work. And this is a good day to come and see the school and meet some of the pupils and meet indeed the, the staff. Friday evening is the Youth Fellowship. Jonathan McCauley, one of our elders, will be speaking to the youth on Friday night. Next Lord's Day, the prayer meeting, 8 o'clock, Sunday school, 10.30, Bible class, quarter to 11, and the worship service at 12 noon, <clears throat> gospel meeting at 7. And I mention the calendars again for 2024, produced by Let the Bible Speak. And they're now available. The price is four pounds each. And make sure if you get one, you pay for it. Uh, just put it in an envelope, put your, your name on it, and then we, we know that you've You've done that. The life and the legacy of Dr. Bill Woods, our dear friend who went to be with the Lord. This is a special memorial service that has been organized at the Martyrs Memorial Church in Belfast. It will be on the Lord's Day afternoon, the 3rd of December at half past three. So as we've indicated, a bit of a quick turnaround for us and a quick turnaround again to get back again. But we will provide transport for those who need it and uh, put your name on the list provided it's there as you leave on the table and if you'd like to travel in our mini bus mini buses whatever is required get your name on the list christmas dinner uh, we need you to attend to this pretty promptly so we know how many uh, to tell the lodge hotel what their menu is as well it's on the 20th of december 6 30 for seven and the menu is there you've seen it all now, what we do have 
and I'll just put it up so that our friends can, can read it. Uh, these sheets are at the door. You can put your name on it. You need to select your menu. All right, so pretty obvious at this time of the year is turkey or ham, turkey and ham or roast beef. That's the two choices. But you also need to put your choice of sweet, uh, what you want. So there's a choice of two. And then there's a place for children. There's a place for youth. There's a place for... Um, what else is there? Ah, well, there you go. Read it for yourself. The turkey, beef, child's turkey. There's a child's turkey. Uh, that means a little turkey for the child, all right? Just a smaller one, smaller portion. And there's, um, you can have Christmas pudding or butterscotch sundae. And if you say to them nicely on the night, give me both, they might do that. I don't know. And then there's a, what we're calling a kiddies meal. So uh, this is for very small children who might just want sausages and chicken nuggets and that type of thing. It's all very clear on the sheet. We're asking you to pray for the school's carol service. We have organized this. This is the first for us. We've invited local primary schools to come in. And we are going to have a time right here in this building. Uh, Quite a few schools have responded. Some others have still just to confirm. And there's a couple of schools can't come because of other things planned. But so far, there are seven uh, schools that have indicated that they're coming. Uh, some of the smaller schools, one of the smaller schools said, can we bring the whole school? Uh, that's fine. So we're really looking forward to this. And we're going to lay on a buffet lunch for the children. And we're going to give them also... Um, and a nice little gift. It's a selection box. Not, not the cheapest one, but, you know, a nice one. Cadbury's chocolate has to be Cadbury's, you know. That's, maybe you like something else, but that's fine. But Cadbury's is good. Uh, if you want to help with that, there are some envelopes, just if you want to give towards the Christmas gifts for the children. If you can imagine, we're going to have three or 400 kids uh, coming in that day, and there is an extra expense. So if you want to give help, uh, do that. If you can help with the buffet lunch, see my wife. We, we've had a good response to that already, and uh, I know many of you are working and not able to come, but we have folks that have indicated that they'll be here, and also uh, some of our committee who are able to come in just to steward the proceedings and make sure the children get seated, um, get seated properly. We have purchased 500 selection boxes. All right. So we went down and we ordered those the other day, picked them up in the afternoon and came out of Tesco's with uh, the, the trolleys, the large trolleys full. Can you please remember the sick before the Lord in prayer? Uh, these are the names. We have added a man that many of you will probably not know, but Derek McLaughlin. Um, he's from the Glebe side behind us. And recently he has come to know the Lord a uh, very interesting story, came into one of the shops locally and, and was really upset about his soul and wanted to get saved. And uh, their staff there, a member from our own church, helped them greatly and got literature to him. Derry came to trust in the Lord. And he, he's, he's quite ill at the present time. He's down in the Macmillan unit of Antrim Hospital. So remember Derek before the Lord and the others that are there. Remember Ukraine. Every week, we, we don't want this just to be put up and, and really we we'll forget about our friends, but 
People are still suffering. War is still happening. And our friends here have still family back in Ukraine. And I know that they are, at a human level, very stressed about that. So we pray. We pray that the war will come to a conclusion. We pray for Israel. We've been commanded in God's Word to remember that country and to remember the people, uh, the ancient people of God there. We bring our tithes and offerings now into the Lord's house and remember its Missionary Council envelopes and school covenant support today. We sing together 645. Is there a heart or bound by sorrow? Is there a life weighed down by care? Come to the cross, each burden bearing all your anxiety. Leave it there. There's many burdens. We prayed about this already. Sitting in the congregation, we know about some of your burdens and cares. And then there's many others we don't know. But you know, the Lord knows. We have a dear doctor friend in hospital. Uh, we've asked you already to pray for him, uh, Tom Geddes. Tom is idiot, and he hasn't been well over the past two or three months. He has had septicemia twice. He's a missionary, has been a missionary for many, many years in the land of Brazil, and a very dear colleague of the late Dr. Bill Woods. And so we commend our brother Tom to you. Many of you will know him. He's been here. Him and his wife took Children's Day a number of years ago and spoke to the children. So Tom needs your prayerful intercessions at this time. Is there a heart or bound by sorrow? What do you do? Well, with all your anxiety, you bring it to the Lord, and by His grace, you leave it there.
sing verse 3. Let's return to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and reading the opening seven verses and reading also what we have in Titus chapter 1. Pray as you open your Bible now that God will speak to your heart as we read this as his word. Anything we have to say by way of explanation is in subordination to the actual word of God. And should I say nothing by way of preaching. Let, let God's Word sink into your heart. And as we think and pray about tomorrow night and the selection of elders to govern in this church, this is what the Lord is saying. This is His guidance. This is His will as we make the choice. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well in his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And I'm reading these words from Titus 1, and you'll see that they reflect so much about what the apostle has already written to Timothy, but it reinforces uh, what the qualifications are of the elder as we read from verse nine through to verse five through to verse nine. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, 
a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that, they, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. With our Bibles before us, we'll pray and look to the Lord for our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're not left to ourselves to speculate, to, to think in our own hearts, to weigh up in our own minds who we ought to choose, what we ought to do, without any guidance from God. But Lord, you have given instructions here. You have laid out very clearly what is required in one who would be an elder in the church. And as our people today contemplate these things, as we listen to them, as the Holy Spirit indeed applies them to our hearts, we pray that as you give us good counsel, that you will help us and help this people tomorrow night to be directed by the Lord. Come to one who knows the end from the beginning. We come to one who is completely sovereign in all things. And we, we do believe as we go forward, seeking God's mind and obeying God's word, that you will appoint to this congregation whom the Lord will have to, to govern in his church. And so settle us down before your word. Give us understanding in the things of God. Grant us the teaching of the Spirit and a teachable spirit within, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The last Lord's Day, we only looked at the opening verse and we thought uh, about what the Lord is saying here, about the admission to the office. It's a man, if a man desire. We thought about the aspiration to the office. There's no harm in aspiring towards it. A man can desire to, to be a minister, to be an elder of the church. We thought about the authority of the office, and is there in the word bishop, which means overseer, one that oversees on God's behalf the affairs of the church in a spiritual sense. We thought about the activity of the office. He's a man that ought to work. He desires a good work, and we laid emphasis upon that. Uh, we, we can't have lazy men in office, but men who are prepared to work for the Lord. And we thought then of the approval of the office. It's a good work, God says. But now we come to the actual qualifications themselves. And we come to the standard that is laid down in God's Word for those who would occupy this high and holy office. What God has to say to us now concerns the marks or the, the character of such men, pointing to their godliness and their spirituality. These are the features that you ought to be looking for. So, so mark them. Mark them here carefully. We have asked you to read this passage. We have asked you to study it for yourself over these past number of weeks, and how much more necessary when tomorrow night the vote will be cast. You need to look at what God is saying in these two passages of Scripture. We do not choose men to the office because we like them. No, we might like them, and that's a good thing. And we don't choose men to the office because they are hard workers in other departments of church life. 
And that may be so. And we don't choose them because they pray well in the prayer meeting. And we certainly want all Christians to be able to pray. And we certainly want our elders to be able to pray. We don't choose them just because they are faithful, but that's important. We don't certainly choose them because uh, they are our family members, they are our friends, they're well-connected, they are influential, they are wealthy, they are intelligent, they are supportive. None of those things ought to be the first things in our minds. Some of them might be so, but these are not the qualifications. Men must be selected in accordance to God's rules. And if we don't, then we can run into all kinds of problems. It goes without saying, this might sound so basic, that elders must be saved. They must have the experience of the new birth. In fact, that is taken for granted as the apostle writes to Timothy and as he writes to Titus. It's taken for granted that the men know the Lord in the first place. What we're dealing with is the, the qualifications of godly men. And in fact, you, you could not be what the Bible tells us that we ought to be without being saved in the first place. But the new birth is essential for those who would assume the office. This is basic, but it needs emphasizing in these days. Writing to Timothy, Paul states the qualifications which are imperative, and he employs the word must in verse 2. I'm sure you noticed it, and you ought to mark it. He must. There's no option here. The elder must possess the stated characteristics if he is to be fitted for this office. This is a very, it's a very strong word. It's, a, it's an emphatic word that is used here, and it applies to all the, the 16 qualifications. I don't know whether you counted them as we read it together, but there are actually 16 qualifications here. These are God's principles, and no one has the right to change what God has set forth. It is the duty of church members, therefore, when coming to select the, the session, the elders of the church, to observe the evidence of divine grace in the lives of the saved men and to judge their fitness before God on the basis of these biblical stipulations. They must, God says, be found in every elder to a greater or lesser degree. These are God's qualifications. Leaders are not chosen randomly. They are not chosen because they desire the office, and we've seen there's no problem in desiring it. They're not chosen even because they are natural leaders. They are chosen in accordance with the divine plan laid down in God's Word. Elders has nothing to do with giftedness. God does not say, go out and choose the most gifted men. But what God does say here is go and choose the most godly men. Godly men who possess the characteristics that the great apostle is outlining here. So what are they? Well, they're 16. And if I was to preach five minutes on each point, well, that would take a long time. But most of the words you are familiar with, and most of them I think you'll understand. So really, just for me to give a comment or two 
on each word will be sufficient. Maybe spending more time on one than the other. For example, the first one is blameless. And that, that word means irreproachable. That there's no scandal hanging over the man's life. Now, he's not sinless. The Bible clearly teaches if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is no sinless Christian and there won't be no sinless elder in the church. But he will be a man who strives diligently to walk by the rule of God's Word. He'll seek to live by the Bible. He'll have a good testimony. He will not be found doing those things that he knows to be wrong. If he wrongs someone else in any way, he will not need it to be prodded to make it right. There will be no just case to point the finger at him. He's got to have a blameless testimony. The word blameless literally means nothing to take hold upon. In other words, there must be nothing in his life that others can take hold of and then use to attack him and attack the church. One of our Bible expositors said the word is a metaphor taken from the case of an expert and skillful pugilist who defends every part of his body that is impossible for his antagonist to give one hit. A pugilist. You all know what that is, don't you? I hadn't a clue. Um, but I know you're more intelligent than me, so especially those that are involved in sport. You know what it is, and, and you should have just used the word. It's a boxer. All right. There's Dave. Dave's nodding. He, he knows what it is. And especially a professional boxer one that defends himself. And so you, you've seen it if you've ever watched the sport. And he's able to defend himself. He's able to, to ward off all the attack of his opponent. And that is what the word blameless means. We're, we're talking here about a man who lives a righteous life that can be seen as righteous. No one can stand up and, and rightfully accuse him of grievous sin. It will be his prayer that men will see Jesus Christ in his life. For that was Christ. That's how the Lord was. That's how he lived. He was blameless. He was holy, harmless. He was separate from sinners, the Bible tells us. And our blessed Lord lived a blameless life. And the elders of the church ought to live this way. He's not only to be blameless, but, and we don't need to spend much time on this, the husband of one wife. Many have differed as to the precise meaning of these words. The force of the words is that elders must be chosen from among men who have only one wife at a time. You've got to go back, I suppose, to biblical times. We, we know that polygamy was practiced. We know that, particularly in the Old Testament, we read about polygamy. We know that it was wrong. We know that the divine institution is one man, one wife coming together. But in the New Testament times, it seems that this had continued 
within church members or people maybe that got converted uh, from Judaism, and they had, some of them, a multiplicity of wives. And here the apostle is saying that a man must have only one wife. If he's married, then he's wedded lawfully to just one wife. Vigilant is the third characteristic. That means he's a serious-minded person. He's watchful. He will be watchful against the attacks of Satan. Satan will try to get into the life of every Christian. He certainly will try to get into the life of every church leader. But the man who is to be brought into office must be a vigilant man. He's, he's watching for the devil. He, he's vigilant over himself. He's guarding his own life. He's vigilant over his family. He seeks by God's grace to guard the, the lives of his children. And he is vigilant over the souls of men that have been committed into his chart. He's a watchful man. Remember the word bishop is talking about overseeing, being watchful. Sober. That just simply means soundness of mind. Self-control. Moderate in thought and in action. He's not a light-hearted man. It doesn't mean that he can't laugh of course he can laugh. Christians are the happiest people in the world, but he's a serious man. He's not constantly joking. He knows how to deal with serious matters in a serious way, because the elder will have to deal with some matters that are most serious. Wearsby commenting on this sober-minded qualification said this, this does not mean that he has no sense of humor or that he is always solemn and somber. Rather, it suggests that he knows the value of things and does not cheapen the ministry or the gospel message by foolish behavior. God is looking for sober men to be in office. Good behavior of solid character not light or vain. He must be able to look at things fairly. He must be able to, to rise above his own feelings about anyone, above his own prejudices. He must be able to control his emotions. He must not only talk well, he must walk well in the church and out of the church. The descriptions, as you can see here, are, are building, aren't they? They're they're building one upon another and emphasizing the need for godly, upright living, given to hospitality. Well, that, that just simply means the elder must be a friendly person. He must be open-handed. He must be ready to entertain. He has an open door. His heart is open, more importantly, to other people, to people that are in need to people that are rejected, to people that are strangers. And I think this congregation has certainly uh, proved that so many of us, so many people here sitting in the church and our elders and our deacons being open-hearted, being willing to show hospitality, bringing in the stranger, not so much strangers to us now, who have been with us for, well, not quite two years, but they've been with us for quite some time but willing to do that, and so much that we do even in other countries 
we're, we're given to that open-heartedness. Apt to teach is the next one. He knows the Word. An elder must know the Bible, and he must know how to communicate the truths of the Bible to other people, whether it's in a private, private way or a public way. Both are in mind here. Not every elder might be up in the pulpit. We have Peter, who had a great public ministry, preached to the thousands, a very able speaker, man anointed by the Spirit of God. But we have his brother, Andrew, and Andrew was not. I, I never read about Andrew standing up preaching, but I do read about him witnessing and spreading the message of the gospel. There would not have been a Peter if there had not have been an Andrew who went to him in the first place and told him about the Lord. But both of them could teach. Pastors, teaching elders, must obviously have the ability to, to preach publicly to the congregations. Some ruling elders will also be endowed with this gift. For others, it will be maybe in a smaller group or maybe on a one-to-one -one basis. But all elders must have a thorough knowledge of the Bible and have skill enough to teach it to others, whether it's in the public assembly or on a personal level. Now, the first seven qualifications here are very positive things. The next three are put in a negative way. Number eight is not given to wine. In our present culture, uh, this age of alcoholic abuse, we advocate as a church total abstinence. The office bearer must be above all reproach in what is one of the most serious problems of today. And it is a serious problem. We, we, know, we know the ills of alcohol. We know the, the ruin that it brings. We know the heartbreak. And you just need to listen to our brother Chris, who was with us at the Youth Fellowship on Friday night, our missionary to the addicts, whether it's drugs or alcohol or other addictions that people have. The elder is not given to wine. He's not given to alcohol. He's no striker. Doesn't mean that he's um, a member of a union and he's calling for strikes. That's not what this means, laying down your tools. Rather, he's not a violent man, either with his hand or with his tongue. He must not be quarrelsome, stubborn, an arrogant man, and certainly not apt to use violence to any. But he conducts himself with mildness, with love, patience, and gentleness. He doesn't retaliate physically, nor does he use his tongue abusively. Some tongues are deadly weapons. Sometimes more damage can be done with the tongue than with the hand. And I was just looking again at what James teaches, and there's a great exposition on the tongue in James chapter 3, but let me just read a few of the verses here, 5 through to 8. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth of great things. Behold how great a, a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. 
so is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on hell fire for every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And an elder is not to be a striker with his hand or with his tongue. And you see the kind of damage that James is, is speaking about here in his exposition. Harmful speech, hasty speech, hurtful speech ought not to leave the mouths of any Christian. And how much more one who is the governor in the church. We need to pray the psalmist's petition when he said, keep the doors of my lips. And every Christian ought to pray that. Every one of us. You be very careful in what you say where damage can be caused. Then we see that He's not greedy of filthy lucre. Filthy lucre is money. He doesn't lust after wealth. Money is not evil in itself. Everyone needs money. We need money to pay for our groceries, to pay for our bills and so forth. Many money men have been godly men. Money with other earthly possessions may not be so highly prized as to hinder his calling to follow Christ. An elder may be a successful businessman. He may be a man of wealth, but he must not be a lover of money, a slave to riches. He's dead to the wealth of the world, and he lives above it. Someone has said gold may be a godsend, but it may be a devil bait. You just want to think about that. Then moving on, he comes to the next qualification. He says patient. That means an elder is to be forbearing, gentle, bears with much when he has to. He's got a gentle disposition. Here's a quality of heart that makes alliances for, for awkwardness and even offensiveness and rudeness in others. It's the ability to put up with much. And sometimes even an elder has to put up with much. He's not a brawler, is the twelfth qualification. He's able to govern his tongue. We're, we're coming back to, to some of these things that have been touched on already. He's not given to anger and disputing. He is in control of his emotions. As some men express anger with their tongues, others with their fists, but neither has a place in the office of the eldership. That's what Paul is saying. Number 13, he's not covetousness. You might think that's been covered already and not greedy of filthy lugar, but the apostle is mentioning it again here, and this, of course, is the last of the, the Ten Commandments, but it's not the least of the ten. But it's probably true to say that more evil results from covetousness than from almost any other sin that you could mention. One of the Bible commentators said, this is a more encompassing thought than merely greedy for money. The covetous man is never satisfied with anything, always demanding something more 
or different, a man who is constantly dissatisfied is not fit for leadership among God's people. Number 14 is what we read in, in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy 3. One that ruleth well in his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And here's the explanation in the fifth verse. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And this qualification is of the utmost importance. An elder must be gifted in the art of ruling. Paul had this in mind when he, he wrote to Titus in First Titus, or, or Titus chapter 1 and at verse 6. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruling. How children behave towards their fathers in the home is important. Are they aware that as a family they are under the lordship of Christ and his word? The families of elders ought to be good examples to other families. Also, sadly, that we have children who, who grow up in, in godly families, and when they, when they get to adulthood, they go astray, they rebel against the Lord. Now, that does not qualify, disqualify a man for eldership. But generally speaking, a man ought to rule well at home. He proves himself within the family because of what Paul says here. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And then look at verse 6. We have the, the 15th qualification. Not a novice, <coughs> lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. What it's simply saying is an elder ought not to be a new Christian, a babe in the faith. He must be mature in the faith and he has been proved before the church as a Christian who has been walking with God. Then verse 7 gives us the 16th qualification. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. And that means he has a good reputation among his neighbors. Now, men may revile us <coughs> because we are Christians. They may speak evilly against us, but I want to tell you this. The world is not stupid when it comes to what a Christian is. Worldly people recognize an honest man when they see one. They soon discover the man of God. And so the elder must not only have a good testimony within the church, and that's important, but he must have a good testimony without the church, and the world is a pretty good judge of character. When people out there are able to say to some Christians, I thought you were a Christian because of their behavior, the things that they do. I thought you were a Christian. You should not be doing that. You've got to have a good testimony before the world. Now, obviously, what is said about the deacon's wife is equally applicable to the elder's wife. And I'm not going to preach on this, but I will draw your attention to 
the 11th verse, where it says, even so must their wives, and four things were mentioned here, be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So you want to, to think about that as well. I know it's directly associated with the deacon, but the elder is a, as a high office, as a spiritual office, and it can be applied also to what has gone before for the bishop and for the deacon. Even so, even so must their wives. I will leave the passage in Titus for you to consider for yourself those verses that we read in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through to 9. But they simply reinforce much of what Paul has already said here. What is the conclusion? Let the Word of God be your guide. <clears throat> when you come to vote, when you come to consider, when you come to mark down who you feel is best to represent this church as an elder, let God's Word be that which gives you direction. And if we do, we'll not go far wrong, and we're going to have blessing in the church. That's all I need to say. Maybe a few other comments will be passed on to you tomorrow night by the minister and his session who will come to, to do the election for us. But be in prayer. Continue before the Lord to seek his mind and his will and do what you believe is that will. We'll sing together 411. <clears throat> I want, dear Lord, a heart that's true and clean, a sunlit heart with not a cloud between, a heart like thine, a heart divine, a heart as white as snow. On me, dear Lord, a heart like this bestow.
Lord, as we close, this hymn has expressed so much of the desire that we feel within. And we certainly want these things. We believe them to be glorifying to God. We believe them to be good for the church. I want, dear Lord, a soul on fire for thee, a soul baptized with heavenly energy. Grant it to us all. Help us, Lord, to be living for your glory. Help us to be doing that which pleases the Lord every day. And as choices are made tomorrow night, let the Lord be there giving his counsel, his direction, and let your will be done for Jesus' sake. Amen.